Please pray with me. Lord, we need frequent reminders of the brevity of this life. For we are in so many ways like the rich man. Distracted and pulled towards the fleeting attractions of this world. Lord, we want to live for that which is eternal. That we might be satisfied with that which is truly satisfying. And honor You with our lives. Lord, we're aware that all the hope that we have is in You. Because of what You did in taking our sin. Dying on our behalf. And then rising from the grave. We're free. Free from sin. And we will be free from death and its decay. All because of You. And so we especially want to honor You now as we hear from Your Word. That You would be pleased. And so that we would be more conformed to Your image. We ask this in Christ's name. So what day do you anticipate more than any other day? What is the day that you particularly are longing for? Is it your birthday or Christmas? Is it uh, the day when you'll finally land that dream job that you've been working for? The day when you get married, maybe? Or when you have children? Or when your children get married. Or when your children have children. Do you know what day the apostles looked forward to the most? Time and time again, they refer to their great longing for the resurrection. The day the apostles longed for more than any other was the day when Christ would return and they too would arise from the dead. Peter speaks of it in 1 Peter chapter 1. We read that. Paul speaks of it in Philippians chapter 3. That's really the focus of that chapter. And also, uh, the Apostle John writes of it in 1 John chapter 3 verse 2. And although we don't talk about it much, the resurrection from the dead should be the day that we too long for more than any other. Because the Bible teaches us that our hope as Christians is not primarily in this life. Yes, He will provide hope. And there are blessings in this, in this life. And He will continue to, to conform us and to bless us even as we live and as we grow into the likeness of Christ. But it's on the day when we receive our resurrected bodies that we will be done with sin. We'll be done with sorrow. We'll be done with pain. We'll be done with loss. And I think the, the reason people don't talk much about their hope being in the future resurrection is just for the simple matter that we're often just more focused on this life and the, the tyranny of the urgent. We have bills that we need to pay. We have meetings to attend, yard work to do, podcasts to listen to, workouts to run through, people to call, 
diapers to change, errands to run, and on and on it goes. And then after the day is done, we're exhausted, we crash into bed just to wake up the next day and run through it all again. So we're often just distracted from eternal reality. And unfortunately, because of this, we don't fix our mind on the great hope that does await us. And the story of the rich man and Lazarus is presented by Jesus really for this point. To wake us up to the reality of the brevity of life. And how we should live in light of life's brevity. It's an interesting passage because it's like a sword that cuts both ways. It is both tremendously encouraging for believers, especially those believers who are enduring great suffering in this life. But it's also a sharp rebuke to those whose hope is fixed in this world. And Jesus is actually telling this story to warn people whose heart was fixed upon money in this temporal life. Look at actually at what he says in 16, chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. This is really the reason Jesus gives this story. It says, Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And this story is meant to illustrate that, to clarify what God thinks of the Pharisee's heart. And it's helpful to remember that in this, Jesus is telling a story. And in this story, he's intending to be very direct. And it's often the case that people think Jesus never sought to upset anybody. But the reality is, if you read the scriptures, often Jesus upset people. That's why they killed him, is because he would tell people the reality of where they were, what they needed to hear. And he's being very pointed here at some people who are not taking their sin and heartlessness seriously. And they were taking their love of money um, for granted and didn't realize it as a problem. And I think if Christ were here, the reality is he would probably offend us too. Because all of us have far more sin than we even realize. And he would address what's really going on in our hearts because he wants us to grow. He wants us to get beyond sin because sin is what is our great enemy. But his intention wasn't simply to offend people. In fact, that wasn't his intention. Really what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to get to the Pharisees' hearts. He wants them to understand how badly they really need him because they didn't recognize that. They thought because of their success, because of their good works, because of their behavior, that they were good with God when in reality they, the way they lived was detestable to him. And they should have clearly seen that their attitude was much more like the rich man than Lazarus. Well, you'll note that, again, Jesus' discourse begins actually earlier 
Um, this story is a train of stories that begin actually in verse in, in chapter 15, at the very beginning. And uh, he's instructing the Pharisees. And the first story he gives is the parable of the lost sheep. And then he presents the parable of the lost coin. And sorry, the lost sheep and then the lost coin. Yeah. And then the prodigal son. And the point of all these stories is that people should rejoice in repentance to God rather than their self-righteousness. And then in chapter 16, he uh, addresses their love of money with the parable of the unrighteous steward. And then he concludes that in verse 13, notice, saying, you cannot serve God and wealth. And then, of course, verse 14, he notes that the Pharisees were lovers of money. And then verse 15, again, he rebukes them because what they thought was honorable in the sight of men was actually detestable in God's eyes. And then he presents this parable beginning in verse 19, highlighting the honor and wealth of the rich man in contrast to Lazarus. And so this story can really be broken down pretty simply into three sections, the first being the contrasting lives of the rich man and Lazarus, then their contrasting deaths and the circumstances surrounding their deaths, and then this conversation that the rich man has with Abraham after his death. Let's look first of all at the contrasting lives, beginning in verse 19. We see that the the rich man, in contrast to Lazarus, is actually not even named. Uh, History has... Church tradition, I should say, has um, given him the name Dives, which is really the the Latin term for a wealthy person. And so that's why that, that's where it comes from. So if you ever read an old Puritan book, for instance, and they talk about Dives and Lazarus. They're talking about the rich man. And it, and it tells us two things about him. It says that he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen and he Secondly, joyously lived in splendor every day. He habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. Actually, the, the verb tense of the word clothe there indicates that this was his habit. So he, he dressed this way continually. Day after day, he was wearing his nicest stuff. Because that's all he owned, apparently. It said he was dressed in purple. And that's significant because purple dye was very hard to come by. It was it was, it was it came from a murex, a type of shellfish, and people would dive and grab these shellfish and crush their shells and um, and make purple out of it. And it was uh, some purple is a color only worn by the very wealthy or royalty. And so this is the way this man dressed every day. So it was like the ancient equivalent of owning a yacht or a Lamborghini. And then the fine linen actually refers to Egyptian flax. And uh, some historians said that uh, Egyptian linen was so fine that it was sometimes called woven air. So he has this habitual dress in fine linen, but also he joyously lives in splendor every day. And, and the vocabulary actually emphasizes that this was kind of, he, he dressed this way for ostentation. He's showing off. He's strutting around, showing his wealth. And this is put in contrast with the life of Lazarus. 
He's a poor man. Actually, the word that's used there is, is, is a word that's reserved for only those with, in the most extreme poverty, those who are completely dependent upon others' benevolence to even get by. So this isn't just like the worker who works on minimum wage. This is a person who has nothing. And unlike the rich man who was covered with purple and fine linen, it shows that uh, Lazarus was actually covered with sores. And instead of living in splendor, he's laid at the rich man's gate. And the word laid there actually means to be thrown down. So it is whoever carried him just cruelly threw him down at the ground at the rich man's gate, hoping that the rich man might give him something or at least one of his guests. But still being shown no care. And it also demonstrates that the rich man was therefore familiar with Lazarus. In fact, that he names him later on. So the rich man knew about him. In fact, he might have seen him every day. And so as this rich man lounges around his home in his finest linen, he, he deliberately ignores Lazarus and his plight. He's more concerned with showing off than he is with a fellow human being. And unlike the rich man who lived in conspicuous ostentation, Every day, Lazarus, this has longed to be fed scraps from the rich man's table. That, that word longing, it, it expresses this intense and this year, yearning that he craved for scraps. But there's no indication that he even got that. It was a life of, con, of just longing for the, the, the lowest kind of food. But he didn't get it. And the point of mentioning the dogs is that these animals showed more mercy to Lazarus than even this rich man. Or at least they came to lick his wounds. And it's important to note that these dogs are not like cute little pets. Uh, these were street animals. Um, they, they weren't like hyenas or dingoes, but they, they, were, they were domesticated, but they also just kind of ran around the streets. So you might think of, if you've ever been in a third world country, they often have dogs running around wild they're not pets but they're but they're they're not wolves either and it shows that he got more attention from these wandering magi mutts than he did from the rich man and then notice how quickly the story moves to their deaths and this is this is very purposeful because if you if you see how much time is given to the after death circumstances to their lives and the, and the point is to to illustrate how brief life is that's why he only gets a couple sentences. He lived in ostentation and then it's over. It says in verse 22, after the poor man died, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So Lazarus dies and then he's carried by angels. To Abraham's side. Now that's significant. We, we tend to think of angels, I think, often because of cartoonists as, as being cute little creatures, little cherubs, you know, with you know, soft feathery wings. But angels in Scripture are actually typically dim, uh, depicted as warriors. And so what's being illustrated here by Jesus is, is Lazarus is getting a, the most honorable funeral imaginable. This would be like... A, um, Navy SEALs 
carrying, being an honor guard for a person after their death. It's a high honor that Lazarus was receiving. And what a, what a contrast to the treatment that he received from the rich man. Now he's being lifted by angels and then placed along Abraham's side. And that's, what, that's what's meant there by um, side. It is, it's really more of a place of uh, distinction rather than um, uh, a position. Or I mean, sorry, it's more of a position and a, and a place of distinction than a, a location. Sometimes it's, it's uh, depicted as, uh, I think the King James, King James Version calls it Abraham's bosom, and maybe you've heard that term before, but it, the, the, the word just means side, and, and, it, and it refers to him being seated alongside Abraham like at, the, at, at, a, at a big wedding feast, at the place of honor. He's seated alongside the father of all the Jewish people. But the emphasis of this story is really on what happens to the rich man, which is why more description is given to his circumstances. Lazarus is carried by angels, seated next to Abraham, but it says the rich man just dies. There's no explanation about his death, no, no real fanfare, no mourning even, just death and burial in the ground. I mean, what an ending to a life of complete ostentation. And it's done. It says that he's carried to Hades, which is described as a place of torment. In fact, that word torment actually refers to torture. It's excruciating pain. It's the strongest word available to describe suffering. And we see that what torments him actually is fire. Notice the the end of verse 24. He says, I'm in anguish in this flame. And I, I believe it's referring to a literal fire. Uh, it's literal, but it's also symbolic. It's real fire causing real torment, but it's symbolic of judgment. The rich man ha- is getting what he deserved for his life of sin. And the fire demonstrates the destructive effects of sin. And the rich man chose to live in sin and selfishness, and now he's experiencing the consequences of it. So we need to, I think, as we, as we read this, put a check on our minds when we think about hell. Um, it's often, I think often the picture that we have of hell is one that's created by cartoonists or our own imagination. The Bible depicts hell as a place simply of fiery torment. In Revelation 19.20, hell is described as a place of fire, a, a lake of fire. So if you picture hell in your mind, think of a, a lake that's filled with some sort of fuel like gasoline that continually burns with ever, without ever running out. Which shouldn't be too hard to imagine because that's what the stars essentially are. Huge balls of gas that never really run out. Now we know, of course, scientifically they will eventually run out, but... Catch the picture. Hell will not, unlike the stars. Now, we all have had bad days. We've all suffered. But none of us have ever experienced what this man is going through. Very few humans, in fact, have ever been tortured. And even those who have been tortured 
knew that they would find relief either from their death from that would come shortly after or that the, 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 the pain would someday end. But the torture experienced by the rich man is eternal. Look again at verse 23. It says, Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. He lifts up his eyes. Previously, when he saw Lazarus, he, he wouldn't even look down at him. He wasn't even worth his gaze as he walked out of his gates. And now... He lifts up his eyes and beholds Lazarus above him, seated alongside Abraham. And to accentuate his condition even more, Jesus says that he saw him far off. So not only was he far above him, he was far away from him. So the rich man was blind to his real condition in life, being blinded by his riches, and that he was also blind to Lazarus' true condition as well. And most of all, he failed to realize that his poor brother Lazarus was like his father Abraham. He was a man of faith. But the rich man wasn't even close because his faith was only in his wealth. He had nothing like the faith of Abraham. His faith was in his money and it blinded him to his true spiritual condition. Now again, this is, this is the contrast of their circumstances after death. Lazarus, who lived in agony during his life, has an honorable death and is placed alongside Abraham in heaven. Whereas the rich man dies ignominiously, only to be tormented for, forever in hell. This brings us to the conversation that takes place after death. He calls out to Abraham, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. So the, the rich man just has a simple request. One, one small thing that he asks for. Send Lazarus with just a drop of water from his finger. It's interesting, this is all he asks for. He just wants a drop. He wants it to cool his tongue. So this little drop seems helpful. And it's interesting, he doesn't even ask for his thirst to be quenched. He just wants his tongue to be cooled a little bit more. He's asking for the smallest amount of mercy. And this is maybe possibly to, to contrast with Lazarus who longed for the scraps from the rich man's table. And notice how Abraham responds to the request. He essentially has him recall the differences in their contrasting lives. Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus and like man are bad things. But now he's comforted and you're in anguish. So Abraham reminds him of his conduct in his life, how he indulged in luxuries and pleasures. And then he ignored Lazarus. And just as there was a great divide in the way they lived, so now there's a great divide separating them eternally. That's what's designated by the word chasm. It emphasizes this eternal gap of the consequences. There's no going back. There's no second chances. There's no going from here to there. It's impossible. What's done is done. There, if there's no repentance in life, there can be no repentance in death. Once we cross the barrier of death, there is no hope for those who are outside of Christ. 
Believers will never experience the flames of hell. But unbelievers will never have them quenched. And the permanence and vastness of the divide, of course, only increases the agony. One of the things that we all have in this hope, in this life, is hope as believers. Because we know that one day all the suffering will end. But this is only the case in this life. If after a person dies, if they have never repented from their sins, they will never experience relief. And they will never taste hope. And so the rich man makes a second request. And he says, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. And then notice Abraham's response. Verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets, let them, let them hear them. The rich man again, no father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham's response, verse 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It's interesting that a short time later, a man would rise from the dead. In John chapter eleven fifty three, it notes that Lazarus was raised from the dead, and the Pharisees' response to that miracle was they wanted to kill Christ. They saw that miracle, and their heart wasn't changed. They weren't convinced about Jesus even after that. And I think if we're honest, all of us are born into this world with hearts like the rich man. We would make the gravest mistake to think that, that's, that Jesus is talking to the ultra-wealthy. This, this is a problem everyone has. Set, setting our hopes and the temporal things of this life, wanting to live in ostentation, wanting people to admire us and applause us, give us applause. And the only way anyone can be set free from their slavery to sin and self is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And to follow him by submitting to his word. So again, the point of the story is that genuine faith will be demonstrated in the way that we live. Or the opposite. You know, you can tell what a person doesn't believe Christ because of their living for self. And so we should ask ourselves, do you take your cues from the world? In what you'll pursue, how you spend your time, or do you take your cues from the Word? Are you pursuing applause or obedience? Faithfulness or fun? Sac- uh, sacrifice or success? Prosperity or perseverance? What is it that you're aiming at? There are many people who think that they follow Christ, but their heart is really no different from the rest of the people in this world. They love the same things, they long for the same things, and you can see very little difference in their lives. The way we live demonstrates what we actually believe. And Jesus wants the Pharisees to see this because it's so easy to be self-deceived. If people admire us, it's so easy to think we're good. We're fine. 
if, if we're comfortable, if life's going the way we want, it's so easy to think, God must be good with me. But the only way a person can be right with God is if they trust Christ and follow Him. So are you like the Pharisees who were lovers of money and who sought to impress men with their lives while ignoring what was really in their hearts? Or do you listen to Moses and the prophets and Jesus and direct your life accordingly? Another way to ask this is, is your hope in this life or is it in the next when you'll be resurrected from the dead? Your hope is in the resurrection. Your life will look vastly different from unbelievers. Because you won't be aiming at the stuff of this life. You'll have one aim. Like Paul says, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, pressing forward to what lies ahead, I press on for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's talking about the resurrection. He wanted to be Christ-like. He was going to pursue Christ-like up until the time where he was Christ-like. When he got his body like Christ, like the resurrected Christ. There was a godly old woman who lived in Scotland long ago named Nancy. And she lived in one of those Scottish glens. And she had grown sick and was quietly waiting for death to end her sufferings and to take her into the presence of the Savior whom she loved. And there was a young man in the village who would often come to see her and talk about religious things. He wasn't a believer. Um, he had an interest in spiritual things, but he wasn't saved. And he didn't understand Nancy's love for God's word. And when she spoke of her home in heaven, it all, he noted that it seemed like it was very near to her. Very real. And so one day he puts this startling question to Nancy. And he, he asked, what if all your waiting and prayers, after all your waiting and prayers and hopes and expectations, that God should permit your soul to be lost forever? In other words, what if it's all a lie? What if you're wrong? And the faithful old Christian raised herself on her elbows and laid her right hand on her precious Bible. And she looked the young man squarely in the eye. And this is what she said. In her thick Scottish accent. And is that all you know about the Bible, man? And then her eyes sparkling with a heavenly brightness continued. If that's the case... If all this didn't come to pass, then God would have the greater loss. Poor Nancy would only lose her soul, and that would be a great loss indeed. But God would lose his honor and his character. I have hung my soul on his exceeding great and precious promises. And if he should break his word, he would prove himself untrue, and the whole universe would come to ruin. All of her hope rested on God's word because all of God's character rests on God's word. And that, brothers and sisters, is a hope worth venturing everything on. Let's pray. Father, strengthen our faith. And for those 
who have not yet trusted in you so that they could be freed from their life of sin and ultimately death. I pray that you would open their eyes that they might escape your wrath. Help them to see that hope and freedom can be found in Christ alone. Lord, we also ask your grace and mercy on our life for how much we do live even as believers for the applause of men and for luxury for comfort and we thank you for the great and wonderful blessings that you do give us in our life our homes our friends and family our jobs how you continue to provide for us Lord we're so thankful for those things And yet we don't want to set our heart on them. So I pray that you would again deepen our conviction of what it means that we are in you and the hope that you've given us in the next life. That we would live like the Apostle Paul who followed you. That we would live with great intensity, setting our hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to us when you return and give us resurrected bodies. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.